Well, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do today, turn with me to the book of Malachi. This is our uh, fourth, fourth message to the book of Malachi, and we're going to be looking at the last verse of chapter 2, Malachi 2.17, and then we're going to go to chapter 3, verse 5. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Father God, we, as, as we just sang a few moments ago, we worship you, we praise you, we joy in the fact that you have come. And Lord, as we look at a passage that um, alludes to not only just your initial coming, but that ultimate and final return, I pray, Father, that we would see that as good news. However, to, to get there, we've got to walk through the warning of that moment, that day of judgment, that day of the Lord. So Lord, I pray that we would uh, understand the the day of the Lord with, with our heads and that we would understand it, that we would understand the nuance of it, that we would believe it, but we would believe it in such a way that it transforms our hearts. That, that these gospel truths would soften our hearts, warm our hearts, and lead us to a place where our lives are increasingly transformed by the gospel. Lord, we have so much to, to celebrate in this moment, and I particularly uh, pray for uh, this Broad Street baby. And as her people and I just noted, she's, she has no idea the love that is just about to just be showered upon that sweet girl. We're so delighted about her life. Her life has purpose and meaning. Uh, we're so grateful for her. And we just uh, lift that sweet family up to you now. But Lord, as we now turn to your word, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word that I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. We've probably heard it said, if, if God is God, then he's not good. And if God is good, then he's not God. That's a false syllogism in my mind. I, I think that is untrue. But that syllogism is really important because I think that's the main reason behind why most people reject the faith or fall away from the faith. My experience is, is that the main, people, the main reason people reject Christianity has less to do with some sort of scientific argument, and it has even less to do with some sort of ethical argument like an LBGTQ issue. And it has more to do with something bad has happened to someone. And then they have to, they, they have to sit in that moment that God didn't stop it. And then they become mad at God for not stopping. And then they reason that God's not real because if he was truly good and loving, he would have stopped it. But then maybe he's not powerful. Maybe he's not really God. Maybe he's not powerful enough to have stopped it. On this argument and this line of thinking, C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity that my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust but how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? What, what was I comparing this universe with that I called it, that I called it unjust? Uh, of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on, on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. I think he has a point. Like, think about it. Why, 
do we know when a circle is not perfectly round because we've seen a perfectly round circle in the same way with justice how do we know something is unjust if there's not this thing called justice out there what makes a better case for justice is it god or atheism tim keller says people we believe ought not to suffer be excluded die of hunger or oppression but evolutionary mechanism of natural selection, it depends on death, destruction, violence of the strong against the weak. All those things are perfectly natural. So a better way to answer the problem of painful injustice is that there is such a thing as true and perfect justice, and we're ultimately going to get to experience. We might not see it now, but, but we, we know that this bad thing did happen. We, we don't, we don't uh, uh, like play these tricks and say it wasn't really bad. We recognize that it's bad, but then we also believe that a day of justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like the ever-flowing stream, Amos 5, quoted by Martin Luther King. Tim Keller concludes, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen, it doesn't mean that there can't be one. You see, God will make all things new. He will make all things right. He will do it through a day of the Lord. Today, as we step into this uh, fourth sermon of, the, uh, of Malachi, it's all about the day of the Lord. It's all about this, this moment of justice coming. God's response to the injustice in the world is to bring about justice, and it's paradoxical that day, that moment. It's a moment that we hope in, but it's also a moment that we should fear. However, how the... The promise of God's justice and his day of the Lord, that's not always encouraging to us, right? It's meant to be encouraging, but we struggle waiting for his justice. You see, we want it the way we want it, when we want it. But many times God is calling us to wait for justice. We're to wait on his timing. We're to trust him. Do you find it difficult to wait for God's justice? But also this issue, um, this promise of, of God's justice and the day of the Lord most of us just simply ignore that doctrine. We, we ignore that truth. We, we functionally have forgotten those truths. We, we, uh, we don't turn to these promises in our day-in, day-out spirituality. Let me say it this way. What, when was the last time you faced something unfair, and instead of blaming God or throwing some sort of pity party, you stopped and just thanked God for his promise of justice in that situation? That bad thing is going to be turned to the good. Do you really believe that justice will roll down like waters? Those struggles is why this passage is so important. We need to quit looking to the world for justice, and rather we need to wait on the Lord for his justice. We need to remember and cherish his promise to return and make all things new and right. And that promise of the day of the Lord, it's meant to encourage us when we face pain in this world. And it's also meant to warn us when we're twisting God's truth. The book of Malachi is dealing with this problem of spiritual apathy, as we've said. Just, they just don't care. It's not that important to them. And much of this is the reason why. So talking about the day of the Lord, it's meant to kind of rattle them or wake them up from their spiritual slumber. So today, we're to, we're to remember that a day is coming where all things are going to be made right. And that's meant to encourage us as well as warn us. So the first thing I want you to see is be encouraged because God is just. Look at verse 217 and then 3.1. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? 
by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? 3.1 says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God's people have wearied the Lord. He's grown weary of them. He's troubled by his people. When he looks down and sees their behavior, he sighs. That's the, that's the context. That's, that's the feel of this passage. As I studied that word, I was, uh, if you remember the old movie, The Gladiator, and if, if you remember that movie, uh, there's a moment where Emperor Commodore says, I'm vexed. I'm so very vexed. So dramatic and such a, such a ridiculous word. I, like I thought of that on wearied. Like this all might seem so dramatic to us. But in the same way that it was very dangerous for a Roman citizen to have the emperor vexed with them, in the same way it's very dangerous for the creation to have the creator God be wearied with them. Do you see that? But why was God so wearied with his people? Well, he gives us two reasons. First, They were doing evil and then twisting it and calling it good. But second, they questioned if God was good and just. The first one, uh, humanity has always justified evil, right? Like, like that's that's not new to our generation. We've always sought to do what was evil, but then call it good. So, So humanity twists evil into the good, a vice into a virtue. But when you do that, just know that that has always been Satan's strategy as well. Genesis 3, 4, and 6 say, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So he's saying God's word is not true. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. It's a good thing to eat this. It's not a vice, it's a virtue. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. If you think about it, the first humans had one job, right? One, one rule, don't eat of the fruit. And that's the thing that they did. They broke God's law. The way they got there is they twisted God's law. They, they took what was meant to be a vice and they turned it into a virtue. That, that's... That's the world's approach to this. That's the demonic reasoning that happens. It sounded good in the moment. It made sense, but it was still sin. And just like Genesis 3 and and Malachi 2.17, God will lose patience with that type of reasoning. But second, humanity has also always questioned God's goodness and justice. Listen, bad things happening to good people, that's that's an old ancient problem, okay? All the way back, from the beginning, that's been going on. That, that's not new to our generation. That's not something that kind of trips up God, okay? Like that has always been happening, and the scriptures are clear. They're very clear. If you do good, bad things will happen to you. The scripture doesn't say, okay, be faithful, and then nothing bad will ever happen to you. That's not what God's word teaches. Therefore, humans have always been tempted to believe the lie that God is not good or not just when something unjust happens to them. If you go back to the example of Job, we read that uh, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. 
Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not also receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So the things that happened to Job, if you remember the story, are not good. But that wasn't an excuse for Job to sin against God. It wasn't an excuse for Job to blame God for all this. Actually, it it was meant uh, to be this moment where he admitted, okay, I don't know why all this is happening, but I'm still going to trust a good God. I'm still going to believe he's good, and I'm still going to follow him. He, He had the right approach to it. You see, these ancient problems, they're also contemporary problems. So we struggle with the same thing. So the ancients can justify evil and question God's goodness when bad things happen. We can do the same thing. However, be warned here. Like when we twist evil into a good, a vice into a virtue, know that that wearies God. So indicting is good character because something bad is, has happened to you or somewhere else, if you blame God for that, just know the danger of that moment. It was dangerous for a Roman citizen to have the emperor vexed with them. And in the same way, it's even more dangerous to one of the creations to blame God and believe that he's not good. However, after closing that chapter with the problem, that's the problem 217. When you make this turn into chapter 3, we now begin to to see the solution. If you'll look back at at verse 1, the solution is a prophecy, right? 3.1 is a a prophecy. It's a a foretelling prophecy about something that's going to happen in the future. In the future, a messenger is going to come. And in the future, he's going to prepare the way for whom the Lord who's going to come to his temple. Malachi's prophecy about the messenger, this is Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The prophecy of Isaiah and Malachi, the gospels recognize that who they're talking about is John the Baptist. So in Mark 1, 1 to 3, we read, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So what Malachi is doing is he's just building upon and expanding upon Isaiah's prophecy. A messenger is going to come to prepare the Lord's way. And, And the Lord's way didn't need to be prepared in the sense that the Lord was lacking in something. He he didn't need his way prepared. The people who needed the way prepared were the people. The people were the ones who were lacking. They needed preparation, if you will. They they needed a messenger to come and prepare their hearts for the Lord. But how did the messenger help? Well, if you go to the next verse in Mark, that that sums up John the Baptist's message. Mark 1.4 says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So John was, was preaching about repentance, but at the heart level. He was preaching about your identity with Christ, but at the heart level. He, he was preaching about forgiveness, but it was at the heart level. What John was doing is he was preaching something that was more profound than, than what the Pharisees were preaching. He was preaching something more profound than just keep the religious rules and go be good. He was pushing it to the inside. He was pushing it to the condition of their hearts. That's how he was preparing the people for Jesus. Malachi's prophecy was that the messenger preparing the hearts for his people, that led to this sudden moment 
where Jesus appeared to the temple. The, the temple is, is God's dwelling place. Even uh, it was meant to be this, this symbol of God being with his people. So the fact that he would come and, and appear at the temple is communicating that he's going to come and be with his people. That's the good news of him coming. This is obviously a prophecy about the Messiah. It's obviously then a prophecy about Jesus. So when, when Joseph uh, was not buying his fiance's story, and I certainly don't fault him for this, but when she said, listen, I'm pregnant, but I'm a virgin, and I'd still like to get married to you, and he didn't buy that. Do you remember what God did? He sent an angel in a dream, and here's what the angel said in Matthew 1, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. And then he says, Emmanuel means God with us. So Jesus was God dwelling with his people. He was physically with them. He was walking with them. He was talking with them. He was working with them. He was teaching them. He was forgiving them. He was healing them. He was sacrificing for them. And friends, in case maybe you're not tracking, notice that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 40, verse 3, Isaiah 7, verse 14, and Malachi 3, 1. Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies. And the reason why I stop on that point is because that is so important it's, it's important statistical math. And the reason why it's important is because today, just like Adam and Eve, just like Job's wife, we're still tempted to twist evil into good, and we're still tempted to believe that God is not good when bad things happen. And when you're tempted in that moment, go back to the math of prophecy. Go back to the, to the truth of Jesus came. Jesus came to his people. You go back to those truths when, when, when you doubt. You don't question God's goodness. You, you don't twist his truth. You, you believe in him because he's the God who keeps his promises. He's the God who fulfills his covenant. Friends, when it's hard to believe God's truth, you, you don't want to believe a demonic truth or a worldly truth. Be encouraged that Jesus has come. He's fulfilled the prophecies. The covenant promises are tried and true. In other words, his word can be trusted. His word can be trusted above everything else. Friends, even when you experience bad things, be encouraged uh, that he is still good. He's still with you. He's for you when you face trials, when you experience injustice. Keep believing his word because he fulfills his promises. The bad thing is not the end of the story. The injustice is not the last word. You can trust him in the face of bad injustices. He's come and he's coming again. Be encouraged. God is just. The day of the Lord is coming. However, the second thing I want you to see is also be warned. God is just. Look at verses 2 to 4. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to God. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former days. So he has come, and he is coming again. Be encouraged. God is just. The day of the Lord is coming. However... Who can endure the day of his coming? <laughs> Takes a little bit of a turn. Okay, that all sounds great, but wait, we're talking about a day of judgment. 
So be warned. The day of judgment is coming. Be warned. Jesus came and he's coming again, but be warned in that. Malachi was, is, is explaining that God's solution to his weariness, to their evil and injustice, the solution is to bring a day of the Lord. Uh, the Old Testament scholar Barker says that, that prophets make prophecies about the day of the Lord, and they have the purpose, purpose of comforting the afflicted, but also afflicting the comfortable. That's what the day of the Lord does. It does both those things. It, it, it's about justice, therefore it's about both conviction and comfort. It's been said that it was a paradox of, of wrath and restoration. Sinners would experience ruin and the faithful would experience relief. Both of those things go on in the, in the day of the Lord. And throughout redemptive history, this is a, a key theme that God returns to over and over again. This isn't just a, a side passage. This is central to your reading of the Bible. And also, this is progressively revealed over time. God shares a little bit of that here, makes his prophecy here, and it gets clearer and clearer and clearer as it goes along. And as it gets clearer and clearer and clearer, it also becomes increasingly intense. In other words, there are many, M-A-N-Y, there are many, many, M-I-N-I, there are many, many days of the Lord. There's a lot of these moments where there's, a, there's a, a day of the Lord, a day of judgment that happens, but they get increasingly intense as time goes by. In other words, when that final day of the Lord comes, it's final. Does that make sense? So when Jesus came, it was a day of the Lord. So when Jesus came, he brought both comfort and conviction. He brought both wrath and restoration. He brought ruin and relief. And depending on where you were in that, it depended on how people responded to Jesus. So if you were like the Pharisees and, and, and you responded where you rejected him, then he rebuked you. But, but if you were like the people who humbly trusted him, like the woman at the well, she found abundant life. Both of those things happened when Jesus came. But also when Jesus came, if you remember, his, his main sermon was about the kingdom of God. He talked about this kingdom coming. And we, we know that the kingdom has an already not yet aspect to it. There, there's a sense that it's already here with Christ, but there's a sense that it's not yet here because it's, it's not in its ultimate form yet. The, the day of the Lord is something similar. It, it gets in, in, increasingly intense as time goes on. Jesus came, but he's coming again. And, and just to give you a snapshot of what it's like when he comes again, Revelation 19 talks about Jesus on a white horse. When he comes, he's going to judge and he's going to make war. Revelation 20 then talks about that he will once and for all defeat Satan. And then it talks about this great white throne judgment where it's this final moment that if your name is not in the book of life, you're going to be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. And then once you get past all that blood, all that judgment, then Jesus sits down victoriously on his throne, and we read in Revelation 21 that he makes all things new. So be warned, because when he comes back to Malachi 3, he will be like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He, he will purify with fire. He will scrub clean with bleach. If you're dirty, it's going to be painful. If you're clean, it's going to be joyful. Do you see that? You see the, the paradox of the moment? Do you see the encouragement? Do you see the warning? The first people that ought to be warned are the leaders, if you look at verse 3. He's coming first for the leaders, okay? And the reason why that's the case is 
they should have been held, they were held to a higher standard, just like the leaders today. And also, just like today, that's the religious leaders that were teaching all the nonsense. They were the ones that were leading the way of twisting what is good into evil, twisting virtues into vices. They were leading the way of of blaming God for the injustice, questioning if he's good. Listen, they're going to be on the front lines of the great, great white throne judgment. Leaders, don't think for a second that God doesn't hold you accountable for what you teach. However, all that refining, notice in verse 4, all that refining results in worship. All that refining is, results in this pleasing worship to God. God's taking his people to this place where ultimately they're going to glorify him and he's going to get the glory. He ends with God's greatness. The, the end is God's people just overflowing with joy because they get to be in his presence, dwelling with him, seeing his greatness, seeing all of his glory. It ends with good news. However, before the prophet closes, he gives one final warning. And this final warning in verse 5 is stern and specific. Verse 5, he says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Friends, he ends with fire. He ends with a stern and a swift and a specific warning. He's coming. He's coming quickly. It's going to be imminent. It's going to be a shocking surprise for most people. In other words, you won't be able to draw out his judgment like with appeals and then hope to kind of wiggle out of it in the end. It's going to be quick and it's going to be decisive. And when he comes, it's going to get real in that moment. It's going to be personal and authentic and intimate. In other words, we won't be able to hide when he comes. Notice this list of six things. This intimate, decisive judgment will be there for the sorcerers, the adulterers, the liars, the oppressors, the inhospitable, for those who do do not fear God. Check your heart. If you're in one of those categories, be warned. But friends, warning is, is good news, isn't it? It's good news because we now have the opportunity to fear the Lord and hope in the Lord. That's why this passage is good news. Don't dance around it. When Jesus returns, it's going to be final. It's going to be this ultimate day of judgment. Therefore, we should fear the Lord. And and, and when you feel peer pressure to fear man, in that moment, you're to fear the Lord more. That's a good thing. That's good news. Fear the Lord because the word of God stands. You see his connections of prophecies? Fear the Lord because his word stands. It's immovable. That's so different than authorities in our life today. Like think about philosophy and sociology and gender studies. Those things are always in flux by nature. And and listen, that doesn't mean they're categorically bad. I think all those disciplines are helpful, but they're not gospel truth, right? Like listen, in all those things, there can be this this kernel of truth, and we need to understand that. But, But they're not tethered to the Word of God. Therefore, they're easily twisted into into all these uh, contradictory places. Just for example, if you're tracking this sort of thing, we're actually on the fourth wave of feminism, okay? 
There's been four different waves. And, and like so many of these things, there's truths in all these things. There's been helpful things that, that come from this. But if you're a first wave feminist, you don't even recognize fourth wave feminism, right? Like we're in this moment where fourth wave feminism is advocating for men to participate in women's sports. Well, listen, if you're a first wave feminist or a second wave feminist, even a third wave feminist, that, that's bizarro to you. Like that's, that's counter to what we were all working for. But, but that's an example of the weaknesses of those types of disciplines. Are they helpful? Of course. But, but they're just categorically different than the Word of God. That's why we trust the Word of God in different ways. Fear the Lord because the Word of God stands. Do you see that? Friends, how do you need to fear the Lord today? But friends, when Jesus is on that uh, white horse and when he appears, I want us to be clear. We're going to shout for joy in that moment. All the pain, all the injustice, all the brokenness is going to be no more because our victor has arrived. He will judge the wicked. He will defeat evil. And then he will sit victoriously on his throne and dwell with his people and make all things new. So hope, hope in the Lord. Hope that Jesus is coming back. That's good news, friends. No matter how bad the injustice is, no matter the pain you've walked through, he is returning. Hope in the Lord in the face of pain and injustice. And I don't know what all you're walking through or have walked through, but don't lose hope. And don't succumb to the lie that God is not good. That's a lie. Don't don't chase that temptation. Keep trusting him that he will turn the bad to your good. And further, have faith that he will bring justice upon the unjust. Who else are you going to hope in? Are you going to hope in some sort of uh, political philosophy? It's never worked before. You're going to hope in, you're going to put all your hopes in a politician? It's never worked before. How do you need to hope in the Lord today? I, I really appreciate the ministry of, of Jackie Hill Perry. She's written a really powerful book about her life. Uh, it's called Gay Girl, Good God. I highly recommend it to you. But uh, she's also... She's a rapper, and she writes poems, and, and she's written a very powerful poem titled My Life as a Stud. And, and in that poem, she, she traces her, her journey through abuse and lesbianism to conversion. It's not G-rated. I, I, I don't recommend that, maybe uh, this one to you. But it is powerful, and it is beautiful. I just, I just want to read some of her lyrics. She, she talks about how uh, truth was twisted. She says, as my heart began to flip, all moral conviction beginning to flip. And then she says, For many years the enemy infiltrated my thoughts with homosexual merchandise, and that day I decided to buy it. But he tricked me. She's being transparent about her low self-esteem and her abuse as a five-year-old. And then she talks about being a stud and how that stroked her ego and how it made her feel good about herself. But eventually Jackie Hill Perry says, Then one day the Lord spoke to me, and he said, she will be the death of you. In that moment, the scripture for the wages of sin equal death finally clicked. As much as I thought that I loved her, my eternity wasn't worth that chick. She goes on to proclaim, as much as I wish that I could be a real boy, my name is not Pinocchio. I'm just me, and he's just he, the real G-O-D, and he's willing to set free all those who are really in need. Amen. Finally, she wraps you chose to, cho- to choose to defy God's rules because inside of you, you wanted to be like him and make 
and make them. I pray you bow now because when God comes back, your knees will break in reverence like the Philistine god Dagon. All I'm saying is there is scripture after scripture that show what your heart already knows is wicked. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, Leviticus 18, 22, uh, and Romans 1, 26 to 27. And please, don't be like Lucifer by taking these scriptures out of context so that you can continue to cheat God out of his glory and reverence. But here's where she ends. I know your pain may run deeper than you or I know, but you are not Pinocchio. You cannot be a real boy, beautiful. Be you, beautiful. The you God created you to be, beautiful. Be you to full, because he is worth it. Amen? He's worth it. Friends, like in Malachi's day, there's a lot of twisting out there. There's a lot of denying out there. And as a result, judgment is coming. Friends, Jesus has come, and he's going to come again. Be encouraged, be warned, and hope and fear the day of the Lord. Friends, Jesus has come, and he's going to come again. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for your word. These prophets don't mess around. Thank you that you have sent someone like Malachi just to, just to shoot straight with us today. But I thank you that uh, you're coming again. I, I thank you that we have these real reasons to believe it, these fulfilled prophecies that are evidence that, it, that it's all true. We, we need that evidence on those dark days, those weak days. Lord, and, and the ways that we are walking through pain and, and, and being tempted to believe a lie that you're not good and you're not going to turn all things to the good, help us to see the good news of the day of the Lord today. And Lord, for those of us who are tempted to twist your truth, to chase what we want to chase, help us to, to remember that you're coming again. Help us to see that your ways are better. And Lord, I pray that as a result of this call, that we would hope with great joy in you and in your return. May you be our greatest joy today. You've come and you're coming again. Hope that be good news to us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.